Welcome to the AERA Writing and Literacies podcast. My name is Alex Corbett. My name is Gemma Cooper-Novak. And today we have the honor of speaking with Christopher R. Rogers, Dr. Tracy Flores, and Dr. Ray L. Oviat. This episode's theme is on literacies and community, and our guests will explore how they are called to community-based work. In the spirit of community, we hope this podcast works to highlight emerging scholarship, push and problematize the literacies field, and mentor and cite others. Before we begin our discussion, we'll start with some brief introductions. Hey, everybody. i begin by, you know, a quote from Septima Clark, one of my, um, one of my beloved educator ancestors, who says that chaos is a gift, right? And the opportunity to Disregard the formality is important. So I'm Chris Rogers, like um, he/him pronouns. Uh, I'm in my third year, going to my third year of my doctoral program at GSC, and um, yeah, I'm getting ready for comps. Just to be, you know, <laughs> pretty frank about that. Uh, but other than that, you know, on the other side of comps is my dissertation project, and uh, it really, you know, centers me in my work in West Philadelphia. Um, besides being a doctoral student, I am the program director at the Paul Robeson House and Museum, uh, which is a project of the West Philadelphia Cultural Alliance. The West Philadelphia Cultural Alliance has its beginnings in 1984 by Fran Austin, um, who was a community librarian uh, who wanted to really jumpstart Black cultural production all throughout West Philadelphia. Um, and then 10 years later, uh, found some funding to be able to be able to restore and purchase um, the house at the corner of 50th and Walnut Streets, uh, which once belonged to Marilyn Forsyth, Paul Robeson's sister. And Paul Robeson moved in with Marilyn um, in 1966. And I lived the last 10 years of his life there between 1966 and 1976. So my role there at the Paul Robeson House and Museum is to uh, be a you know, representative that shares the history of Paul Robeson's legacy as an entertainer, activist, scholar, athlete, um, someone who you know, put his life on the line to fight for human rights uh, and the rights of uh, workers, right? And the community that he built around himself in terms of like um, a black radical international uh, community. Um, so we represent that legacy and tie it to like the power of arts. Um, so we work with like community groups um, in all different, you know, types of whether it's just like political education is happening and we're a 501c3 so we are not doing like you know partisan political education but understanding the um the issues that are important to like black struggle um throughout time um also um with that we're also a space to you know incubate new artists and and get people the resources they need to be able to go out and perform and practice their arts um, and make connections to social action. Um, so that work is fun. I've been there since 2015. I've been there before I even got back into school. Uh, so at this point, it's like, hey, I'm going to be here anyway. How could I make this thing useful for while I'm going to be in school versus uh, I know some of my other colleagues who are like trying to find a site for their work. I sort of came in with the site and was like, OK, what can I do while I'm here that would be legitimate for the a PhD degree. <laughs> um, so that's a little bit about what I do. And I think the last thing, I was trying to get this thing going. So this book is um, it's from Odunde, which is the largest African-American, like the African diaspora festival, which happens here in Philly. 
and they wrote a book about the power of social dance. And it's called From, From Hucklebuck to Hip Hop. And my research is about race, place, and space. And there's this one sentence on the back of this that I think is so important. And um, <laughs> so, nationally, so I'm gonna just read like the final sentence and then I'll pass it off, right? So nationally viewed Philadelphia programs like America Bandstand, that one with Dick Clark was filmed in West Philadelphia, uh, presented watered down versions of African-American dance to the nation while keeping African-Americans off their shows. Now, meanwhile, this is taped in West Philadelphia where it's majority black neighborhood. So just think about that, the irony of that. But in our own neighborhoods, people were creating dances that pop fads then tried to imitate, says dancer Karen Warrington. You had to be in our social circles and neighborhoods to see dance happening. Plus it was always changing. Certain dances were emerging. You had to be there to see it. So with this project, we have gone to the people who were there. And that's pretty much what my work is, right? Of like the dynamic change and shift that we see inside black communities. Um, that is often obscure because a lot of people just like to say that black neighborhoods are the changing scene in terms and some of it is in terms of like the amount of discrimination systems of oppression that are like leveraged against black communities. But within them, there's a ton of resistance, a ton of change, a ton of dancing, a ton of joy. Um, and I try to like lift that up with my work and um, trying to get better at how you document that as scholarship because I have so much fun just going to the dance rather than writing about it. <laughs> so I'll leave that there and uh, glad to be here. Thank you so much. Um, I am so happy to be here in community with all of you this evening. Um, Chris, Ray, Emma, and Alex, thank you so much for bringing us all together to um, have a conversation. I'm finding a lot right now that I'm really wanting connection and community more than ever. It's, it's the foundation of, of who I am and how I was raised. But this conversation already, hearing Chris talk about his work is giving me so much life and making me um, so happy to be in community, but also be doing this work with one another. And so um, my name is Tracy Flores, and I am currently an assistant professor of language and literacy at the University of Texas at Austin. I am entering my fourth year this school year and prior to moving to Austin to, um, to become an assistant professor, I was born and raised in Phoenix, Arizona. My roots are here in the desert, um, the dry heat that is Arizona. And I was born and raised in Phoenix. I taught here, I went to school here. I got all my degrees at Arizona State University. Um, I taught here in Phoenix and Glendale, Arizona for eight years. I taught second through sixth grade um, in English language development settings, as well as English language art settings, um, before heading back to Arizona State to get my doctorate in English education. And um, I, I share this journey where my roots are and about teaching and going to ASU and working in schools here in Arizona, because that is so foundational to the work that I do. Um, I draw on my classroom stories the challenges, struggles, and joy of my students, of their families. I draw on my experiences as a second generation Chicana, uh, born and raised here in Phoenix, Arizona within an educational system that in which I had limited access to my own um, language practices. 
Um, my mother and father were also born and raised in Phoenix, Arizona. And so their story, their language story, their schooling story is also part of my story. And my mother, when she was younger, she was punished for speaking Spanish at school. And therefore I was not raised uh, speaking Spanish. And so I've spent my, my life, my, my life, a lot of my uh, adult years trying to reclaim uh, my language as uh, something that's important to me and something that I also want to share with my own daughter Milagros. And I, all of this is wrapped up into the work that I do, into the ways that I come to work alongside pre-service teachers at UT Austin, into the ways I work alongside Latina girls in Somos Escritoras and their mothers in Somos Escritoras, and in the ways that I think about being in community with, with, with people. And so my work um, that I'm currently doing started when I was in the classroom um, teaching second grade. Um, I always believed that my, my students had beautiful stories to share and that their families had beautiful stories to share. And so I created a family writing workshop in which I invited my students and their families into the classroom for an after school writing workshop in which we used uh, drawing and writing and oral storytelling to tell our stories. And within that space, I built a really, I built really strong relationship with my, with my parents and the students um, because we were both sharing our stories. It wasn't me just facilitating this workshop. It was this reciprocal sharing of stories. And this workshop, the first one that I ever did took place in 2010 when I was teaching second grade. And this was the same time that Jan Brewer signed SB 1070 into law, the papers, papers please law here in Arizona in which if you're stopped by the police, they can, and you look like you might be undocumented, they can ask you for your papers. And so I was having this workshop and teaching in this space when all of this was happening. So not only were we sharing these stories, but it became like a, a little, a sanctuary for us, a, a place for us to come and just be, and to also share knowledges, share resources about how to navigate this, this time that we were all experiencing in very different ways. And so from that workshop, I, I, I just continued this work as a classroom teacher and it followed me into my work at Arizona State University. Um, but before I got to ASU, I taught sixth grade and that's where it shifted to, to girls because I was working with these brilliant girls in sixth grade who wanted to talk to me about their changing bodies, who wanted to talk to me about what was happening. They, they trusted me, we, we had this, you know, confianza. And, you know, I, I didn't want to silence them, I didn't, but I also knew like I didn't want to push those boundaries too much. And so I thought, well, what if mothers and daughters come together in a space like I had done with my younger students to share stories. And so that's where my dissertation with girls, Latina girls and their parents uh, came together that then has evolved after two summers of that to Latina girls coming together. And this is really, this is the hard work. This is what keeps me going every single day. This is the space that I wish that I had when I was younger to read culturally sustaining texts, to read Gloria Anzaldúa, to read Audre Lorde, to read Michelle Settles, to read Patricia Hill Collins as a sixth, seventh and eighth grader would have changed my life. And to examine my own experiences alongside these, my heroes would have, I really think it would have shaped me differently. And so in this space, we read these texts, we examine our experiences, we examine the world and we come together in community to share, write, and explore our lives. And um, in this community, we also have a, a group of facilitators, other Latina women from the university and also from the community who serve as facilitators. So it's, 
it's a space where it's girls and, and women coming together intergenerationally to share stories and experiences and amplify our voices, to unearth our silent stories, to unearth our histories, and also to learn that we are part of a legacy of women who've come before us. And right, when you, Chris, when you were talking about that, I was like, yes, yes, like we have been doing this. But I never learned about women like Hobi Thaydar when I was in school. I didn't learn about these these activists, writers who were using their voice in really important ways. And so we are part of this legacy. And so that's where the work is, the work is rooted. It's rooted in our legacy, our traditions, and thinking about how we can also think about this in schools. What does this look like to have a curriculum like this in school, to really be culturally relevant and culturally sustaining? And so I'm just so happy to be in conversation and I can't wait to hear from Dr. Oviat. Thank you both for um, for going first so that I knew what I was going to talk about. I really appreciate you. <laughs> so um, I think that I actually want to start um, because I really resonated with how, um, Chris, you called in your academic um, or teaching um, ancestors, right? And I think about, um, for me, someone who actually worked um, really closely with Septima and... Um, um, and someone who inspired me early in my organizing work and then who I came back to in a very deep way in my first year of graduate school when I started my PhD um, actually was Miles Horton. Um, and thinking about how um, his process of facilitation, which was then taken up by like, um, which, you know, I wonder if he's credited with it, but you know, I wonder where that really came from. Um, but <laughs> um, this idea of uh, a facilitation right, which then the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee certainly um, modeled as they were children growing up at Highlander Folk School and then, and then organizing like their own space because they were so much more radical than their parents and what they wanted to do next, right? And, um, and for me, the way that that resonates is that, um, you know, I grew up, I'm originally from Chicago, Illinois, and not the suburbs. I'm originally from Humboldt Park, just to be really clear about that. Um, and so what that means for me is that um, I grew up going back and forth between um, my um, Nona and my Zia's kitchen tables and then to my neighborhood where, um, you know, I grew up at, um, at my friend's um, abuelas and Zia's, and, sorry, and Tia's kitchen tables. And so like it was this back and forth that um, I've done my whole life, and I don't think I really properly even began to make sense of until graduate school, honestly, um, or unpack properly, right? Because none of the preparation, the academic preparation I had before ever had me prepared to begin to even think through, yeah, I know I think different, but I don't really understand why I think different. Um, but I can tell you that that manifested for me at a very early age. So uh, I first um, demonstrated at my first... Um, resistance uh at the state capitol at 13 years old right like i was holding like my poster up and like you know and i was and i knew why i was there like i i was there because and this is telling my age but i was there because um the the folks coming from my neighborhoods were going to be the first to get drafted and there was no way that that was going to happen right like that that mm -mm. like i knew right at 13 i don't know how i had that kind of consciousness but i knew um and then at uh, 16, I organized um, my first punk show actually for um, uh, a, a neighborhood center that was taking in queer youth who were being thrown out by their families. And, um, 
and the, and all of the proceeds went back to the neighborhood center so that they had a place to continue to um to to give home for these homeless youth that kept finding themselves there because their families could not um you know in those years certainly and this still happens today um begin to understand that these are the children that they 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 were born to be right and like like let's just love them <laughs> like what does that look like how radical is that just to come from a place of radical love um i don't know why that's hard but um i went from that to um you know going back to the kitchen tables um i went from that to also being surrounded by folks who hadn't gone to school before me but were filling me with arts and stories and um and dance and music in ways that like I naturally gravitated towards this idea of story and storying and um and then that led me to literacies right and it was and it didn't do it fast I thought I was going to be like a photography teacher I don't know what I thought I was going to do with that but um but I actually ended up bringing photography into my classrooms right and so this began my multimodal journey so when I say multimodal literacies I feel like the kind of multimodal literacies that I engage as a scholar are not well represented in the field um, and I wish that were not the case because it made my grad studies so much harder, right? Um, but the reality is, it's like I situate all of that work not in the good work that has gone before. And so that it, I do not mean to disparage or disrespect any of the scholars that have allowed me to be where I'm at today, where I can problematize and think through a very critical lens about multimodal literacies and the purpose of why youth take those up, right? And that was really what I was interested in. And so when I began looking for spaces at, during graduate school at Michigan State University for, and that started in 2016, where I could, you know, do what a grad student does, like, you know, come in, maybe get an invitation if I'm really lucky, um, do something small. Mm -mm, That's not what happened next, right? Because I had all these folks that had come before me, including um, my organizing elders, and who taught me, like, the way that you are going to do this is you are going to be showing face first and then you are going to be like crossing the thresholds that the gatekeepers necessarily are going to keep you out of first right and and that may take some time and then and then you are going to do this next and so i just you know i nodded and i listened and that meant that like um i had opportunities to have what i refer to and what one of my communities refers to as like ego flattening experiences i picked up garbage sure yeah is that what you need me to do today cool like let me do that right it wasn't about um how can i come in here and tell you how to do things it was about how can i be of service and let me show you by picking up garbage if that's what you need today that that is what i mean like how can i be of service and what i found was that at in lansing unfortunately um as power shifted um in that capital city of michigan um the funding for youth programming um, suddenly disappeared. That's been a whole thing this past summer, um, especially with our Black Lives Matters um, organizers in the city. Um, so all of the youth programs disappeared. And so I knew, who, given how I grew up, that I would not have access to um, paying for a community program, but I, but I would want to have engaged with them, right? And so I looked for spaces and they were like, oh, well, you're gonna need to do this or they we're gonna need to do CW2s if it's free. Or, and I was like, what? Like, that's whack, like, no way. That, do you even understand the implications of what you just said? Um, and so I ended up partnering with um, Lansing Parks and Rec and, and, it, and it just kind of organically grew from that space. They were like, wait, you wanna, 
like come in and build a youth program. And I was like, well, like they're gone, right? Like the youth programs have lost funding and they're gone. And I've got this time that I need to be building something. And it looks like maybe there's a match here, but it really came from a response to students that I had taught in Lansing the first summer that I was there um, who said, what's next? And that very question was like, oh, right? And we were reading codes between the world and me when they asked that question. And what they meant was, okay, now what are we gonna do about it? And I was like, hmm, okay, okay, let's do this, right? And so I let, I let myself not get in the way of that is what I let, right? Um, I, I'm kind of stepped back and I said, well, what do you wanna do? And they were like, wait, what? Where's the curriculum? And I'm like, no, 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 you don't understand. Like, this is not school. So now what, what do you wanna do? Like I can, you know, connect some folks and get conversations started and, um, and you know, I have kind of this time to kind of make this happen. And um, what, so what do you wanna do? And so we started our first project and, uh, and that became our first youth participatory action research project in summer of 17. And it, and it kept going because again, the questions kept being asked by youth and then by their community members, what's next? And I was like, oh, okay. And so it continued all the way through um, the summer of 2020. And so I just wrapped up our first virtual summer of YPAR. And that is wild. Virtual YPAR is wild. Um, you know, but it's the time, it's the time that we're in. And so now I have transitioned. Um, I am teaching high school back in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, I'm in a um, North Atlanta suburb, but it's one that has really changed mostly in its racial demographics in the past five years. And so what that looks like is that two thirds of my students are students of color. And, um, and did I mention that I also happen to teach special ed inclusion in those rooms? Um, and that, you know, as a matter of fact, like on top of doing that, like I'm also um, assistant teaching faculty of uh, multicultural education at Wichita State University virtually in this time. Um, so what does it look like to be a community engaged scholar when this is where you're at, right? Um, and again, I have to go back to that question, what's next, right? What am I being asked to do next? Um, and, and who I am is I'm someone who um, wants to be of service, um, wants to be of service in a way that hopefully forwards racial literacies, wants to be of service in a way that um, pushes back against our systems of racism that continue to affect the people that I grew up with and continue to love to this day. Um, and the mentors that have brought me up along the way because they understood my heart was in the work. Um, and so what that looks like today is that um, I am gonna end up the you know, um, advisor for our Student Anti-Defamation League um, chapter at the high school, right? And that's one way I get to be of service. And I get to be of service in my classroom in the ways that um, I can trouble the curriculum, right? Um, and I get to be of service by uh, bringing in these um, first year uh, undergrads who are just coming into teacher education and asking what it means to be a teacher in this time. And I get to push their thinking there because I was intentionally brought in to do so. Um, and I get to be of service to my grad students, right? And so what that means to communities is um, yet to manifest, but my commitments stay the same. They don't go anywhere. Um, and I'm just waiting to see where the adventure takes me. Maybe in the spirit of what's next, we can, um, maybe we can talk about how family and community um, and legacy connects and pushes us forward to what's next. Um, 
and then maybe we can transition from there into any um, maybe mentoring or words of wisdom for other scholars looking to do similar work. I think what's interesting about what I what I and I think Tracy and um, Dr. Obiat um, also brought for me was so I going back to my own history. I grew up in Chester Upland School District, which is probably like probably listed as if it's not the worst school district by state test scores, it's pretty close. Um, and what that meant is that we were throughout my entire lifetime under some sort of like state mandated uh, reform law um, of like what our schools needed to change. Uh, however, I was the son of a school teacher uh, in that school district, uh, Beverly Box, Beverly Box Rogers. Um, and I was in the gifted program in like first grade. I was treated as the sort of like kid who had a future. And I mean that in like a very like terrible way in the ways in which our schools are set up to track kids and let folks know at earlier and earlier ages that you are not enough, right? Um, I was the sort of like beneficiary of that, right? Um, and I was taught at a very young age to always be thinking about what's next. Because as a young black male, everything was out to end my future. <laughs> so you had to be smart and on it at such a young age to understand what was coming up next. Um, and I, I, I offer that context to understand that a lot of what I do in community and with folks is always tied to strategy because it has to be. Um, and we're constantly thinking of what's coming up around the corner. And this summer, you know, in terms of like black life in this country, all it, it reminds you of that, right? Of this constant um, simultaneous feeling that that I think is like the double consciousness of black life that I need to understand the world as it is today, but also understand the world that I want to create. Um, and I live that um, daily. Um, and a lot of the initiatives that I engage in, that I sort of like cultivate are all about that. And I take that to like have young, to give a young people an understanding of what that, um, means to sort of like to live in the flux of those two things. Um, so one initiative that I don't think I've mentioned yet is the Black Lives Matter at School uh, initiative, um, which comes out of uh, teacher organizing um, in Philadelphia um, and expanding on the, the official Black Lives Matter network principles that were established by Patrice Cullors, Alicia Garza, and Opal Tometi and thinking of like, how do we take those lessons and apply them into our classrooms? Uh, recognizing that we need new generations of activists, right? Um, and that um, it's important that we use our schools and classrooms as spaces for like community forums. And I think, and most importantly, it's not that the black kids in, in Philly don't understand what needs to happen, but a lot of these teachers need support in figuring out how to listen, how to be attuned, 
and how to undo their own sort of like harms and unlearn violence. Um, so, you know, I've been doing curriculum with that project for a couple of years and it's kind of connect and how I get into curriculum. I think most comes back to like my own <laughs> DJ experiences in music from a very young age when I learned how to pirate music, I knew how to find the good stuff. <laughs> I wish I could say it's like, yo, you, you know I mean the library or whatever. Nah, it was cause I was downloading mixtapes and music. And that's how I figured out, all right, if you're attuned and you know how to browse and you know how to find the pockets, you can figure out some really good resources that are of use to your community. So that skill has always been something I've always honed in on. And I bring that to curriculum by scouring the internet, scouring um, movements and archives to think about what are the lessons that we need to be teaching in schools and how can those lessons invite a new generation of activists to really take the uh, mantle of our movements. Um, so that work has been really exciting. This year we're launching the Year of Purpose. Um, so as we say, we in Seattle, where the first, it was like a day. And then in Philly, we turned it into a week of action. Now we're in the Year of Purpose. And um, Okai Kaikor, a good friend in New Jersey says, it's a year of purpose to talk to institute a lifetime of practice. Um, and what the Black Lives Matter at school work looks like is really focusing on intersectional justice, focusing on the Black queer feminist frameworks that are leading or many of our sort of like popular uh, Black led movements of today, whether it's the movement for Black Lives, Black Lives Matter official, BYP 100 are honing and understanding this new black queer feminist framework. I just own sort of like antecedents and someone like Ella Baker and SNCC. Um, and we figure out, all right, how can we invite, you know, uh, classrooms of all ages from early childhood to elementary school, middle school, high school, even some post-secondary to think about how do we, you know, teach the movement and teach the movement in a way that is a like uh, like about the activities and daily behaviors and choices that any of all of us can make that add up to these historic changes in the world um and that work has been you know pretty fun um and it's accumulates over time right and we're always thinking of like what's next right um and the what what's next with that is seeing the flowering of many different formations of teacher activism um, that are that have intersectional justice at its core. Uh, Bettina Love's Abolitionist Teaching uh, Network, uh, the Education for Liberation Network with the Free Minds, Free Peoples Conference, um, the Black Lives Matter at school. These formations are really important and you're seeing the connections into like the, the role of like teacher strikes and the ways that uh, teacher unions um, which have notably, you know, have been notable for um, upholding progress for black and brown communities, um, are now beginning to understand how they can leverage their power towards, you know, bargaining for the common good, bargaining on behalf of wins for marginalized communities. Um, so we love that influence and we see it going. Um, so that work kind of continues. And I think, um, you know, what's next is kind of sitting in on this idea of abolition and police-free schools. Um, 
I'll, I'll stop here, but I want to say, like, I'll lift up the Philadelphia Student Union of where I'm the board chair. Um, <laughs> talk about roles. Well, I'm the board chair of the Philadelphia Student Union, and our students have been really, like, leading the way for police-free schools in this country. And Black Lives Matter School is picking up that demand and spreading it and letting teachers know how they can, like, incite the change needed to remove police officers from schools and invest in more sort of, like, nurturing roles such as school counselors and nurses. Um, that work, that work's fun, man. And, uh, you know, constantly thinking about what's next. And I see like 10 books around me that are helping me figure out what's next after that part too, so. Uh, if it's okay, Dr. Flores, um, I actually have some connections to what uh, Chris just shared. So um, this goes back to this idea of what's next, but I also want to think about um, how you situated that as not a historical of what's come before, right? And, um, and in thinking about um, the connections across and not in a linear way, which is, um, as I understand it, a very white Anglo way of thinking of time, but and thinking about um, these ideas of interconnections um, of, um, of our past, like, um, and our presence actually, like, all being um, really connected in a more, um, spiraled or circular way. Um, I have a, a former student and now colleague um, in Kenge Robertson um, in Detroit Public Schools who, yeah, <laughs> who uh, writes, for, has been writing a little bit for y'all and I'm um, super excited to continue to watch that rock star um, as she rises up through academia. In fact, she'll be with us um, next month for our uh, next literacies chat um, on Twitter. Um, and I'm, I'm super excited to- um, Can I do a small thing there? Because yeah. Nkenge Robinson, amazing educator. Mm -hmm. um, Nkenge got connected to Black Lives Matter at school. And then I asked Nkenge, I was like, do you know about the Allied Media Conference? And she was like, I, I think I might've heard of it, but I don't know what happens there. So I'm like, you, you have to connect with the, the um, it's the a track of the amazing Allied Media Conference, which happens every summer, uh, the Visionary Educators for Social Justice. And next thing you know, I look back and, and King Gay's one of the chairs for the programming. I'm like, man, a star, a star out here, grinding and leading the movement out there in Detroit. Okay, I'm, I'm done celebrating. <laughs> No, I, that's actually why I wanted to go next because of because yeah, I don't know how you could not lift her up. She's just that amazing. Um, but in that same vein, I want to lift up um, Sarah Jackson, who will also be joining us on the next uh, literacies chat with Dr. Stephanie Oliver, um, rounding out our full panel of um, Black women um, educators and scholars in transition. So uh, very much on my mind, I think right now. Um, but Sarah's first um, scholarly publication. Um, will be coming out with us. Um, we just got the acceptance letter yesterday. Um, that piece that that comes from love and from the heart and started honestly in the work in 2016 with Sarah Jackson um, and the rest of our crew, Dr. Von Watts and Dr. Terry Flanau, um, will actually be seeing the light of day finally after a whole lot of massaging and love. Um, and that that's uh, this research that we are doing is just the beginning of the conversation undergraduate researchers enacting literacies of relationality um, and that's also a project that I did not mention um, that I have been connected to since 2016 and that project specifically looks at the experiences of um, students of color at a PWI um, and, it, and it seeks to really center 
um, the space of youth participatory action research as like a resistance space um, and a mentorship space for critical mentorship. And I think that as we're thinking about both what has come before and what is next, there are these ideas of like how we need to continue to plug into not only how we can um, eradicate um, and interrupt um, the language of negative self-efficacy that is, I find so often embedded into youth that are coming up through these really racist school systems. Um, but how can we simply say to them, like I did to um, one young man last week um, who used the word accident when referring to the age gap between um, himself and his older siblings, I said, well, you, you take that out of your language. You are not, not an accident, you are a gift. Like, mm-mm, right? And this is, this is the kind of language that we need to continue to be involved with, with, with young people, with undergraduates, with each other, right? Like, how do we honor each other in this space as well and continue to, um, to push towards um, revolution? <laughs> but to do so in ways that like, come from this, like, um, this deep um, commitment to both our communities and to each other, um, and to uh, seek to just re, uh, resituate ourselves always as coming from a place of, um, of radical love. And that's really all I gotta say about that. Um, so what's next? What's, what's the next, uh, where are we going from here? Um, this summer I hosted uh, two workshops. Um, we were planning to have our Somos Sacerdotes workshops at the UT Austin campus with at the Benson Library, which is the largest Latin American collection like in the world, it gets lots of visitors from all across the country and from all across the world. And I was super excited to be able to partner with them and we were gonna we have this great collaboration. The Glorianne Zaldua papers are there, her writing, her work is there. And so I was super excited. Then everything shut down and I kind of shut down too. Um, I, I had a hard time uh with just everything happening in the world and everything happening in life and um just it all kind of came to a head and um as march and april kind of happened i was like what is this going to look like do we still host these workshops you know so forth and i decided you know like i i want to do this i met with the women who were going to work with me and we all were like we need we want to do this we need to do this we've got to be creative and so I started to meet with uh, um, the tech people at UT, uh, Karen French, to get ideas of how to make this happen. Because um, I have never really done online stuff or remote stuff. And it really was a community effort to make this happen. You know, I've, I've been here in Phoenix. My sister helped me. She always helps me, but like she's a tech person, a film person. I had a group of women from uh, UT and also the surrounding community. I also invited a doc student from Arizona State. So that remote space lent itself to that. And we hosted 30 girls in June um, from across the country. So the remote space opened us up in ways I had never imagined. DC, uh, Texas, New Mexico, uh, Iowa, Illinois, Washington, the state. It was beautiful. We came together every single day and it was our, our theme, which it always is, but it felt different this time was about the communal about reconnecting to our roots, to our ancestors, to the ways of our communities. And um, it was a beautiful time, a beautiful space. And um, we had our celebration at the end. Parents came on and families to watch the girls uh, 
the girls um, read their work. And one of the really amazing things, um, we all know that families care and that they are engaged, but being remote and seeing the families come around the girls to help them be able to be here, doing the tech issues, all of the ways I was able to engage in different ways than when they just dropped their daughters off. I mean, we, we built relationships, but it felt different this time. And I was getting emails and all these different messages about like, I am so happy my girls have this space to, to just be and to, to uh, think about this moment, to think, to process alongside other girls. And um, that really opened my eyes to the possibilities of family engagement, community engagement, how we are with our communities and how we can come together in different ways. And so in August, we had a second iteration and I went back to the roots of Somos as we thought us to a mother-daughter program. And we had mothers and their daughters come together and we uh, came in community to write and share our stories. And so from these two experiences, I really learned the ways that you can connect in this space. Um, you can build relationships, you can build community. And uh, I'm, making, I'm thinking also about what does this look like for schools coming together like this? What does this look like for teacher education? Because we can't go back to the way that we've always done it. We're we're, we are remote right now. How can we take all of this that we're learning right now to build something better, to deconstruct, to build something better alongside of our families and our our students and communities. Going back to the communal, communal, how we come around children, how we come around as a community around children to teach, learn, and grow together. And I've really been thinking about what does this look like? What, how can I take this learning from SOMOS? How can I bring all of these things together to build something better um, alongside in community with students and families? Because I just, I learned so much within the space of, of writing, of sharing of our, our stories. And um, I feel like there's some momentum around that too. And so I also see this work going to continue uh, rem remotely in some instances. And also I've gotten a lot of um, teachers who are interested in learning more about the books that we're reading, the activities that we do. So I also am thinking about what does this look like to to be in community with teachers and thinking about SOMOS in that way too. And so that's kind of where, where it's going. And also continuing to historicize the work. There's people who came before us. We are part of this legacy. This is, we are not just, there's women and people who came before us who've used their stories and their voices in very powerful ways. So these are all the things that I'm thinking about and really continuing to listen and be responsive to what the girls are saying, to what the mothers are saying, to what my communities are saying. And um, yeah, it's kind of what I'm thinking about right now. Man, I, I'm sitting in on something that you just said right there, because I think one of the most like, um, and I guess this is like where I'm at in the third year, like disappointing things that I have seen is how people lose the like i know and because maybe because i'm robeson house and it feels like from what you offer tracy of like being in community and leading community or facilitating community sessions having to deal with as a rate offer of like yo you got to take out the trash too and you got to put up the chairs and 
those like things as a practice and when you have a regular practice of doing that it makes you so much better as a scholar and i hate when i'm <laughs> okay i don't want to go to what well, i i do feel so disappointed when i see scholars who are trying to tell you about community work and you know they would not survive a community meeting and don't understand or you know take their book learning radical theory and think they're just going to profess it onto what a community is and i'm like y'all i don't i need everybody to have a practice of being at community meetings and not like the nice ones that you organize yourself but the ones that piss you off and you have to navigate when someone's just like bringing up the baggage that of that life has into this meeting and you got to figure out how to deal with it and i i get so um annoyed when i see scholars and type and, and work that doesn't allow space for that messiness to happen um because that in that messiness and that is where the work happens to me that's where the real work begins and yeah so i i when i think about how teacher education needs to change it's that yo like go i need you to be at some community town halls where you're <laughs> where you're a white person and this is a gentrifying neighborhood and everybody's like you you are the gentrifier how how do you move in that space because when you go into the classroom guess what those kids are saying so i need you to practice that and understand your principles in those situations um and i think like out of anything that my community work um like gifts me right is that um it's that understanding of the like what comes before the baggage that we all bring into a space how do we work through it how do we navigate it and i think for me that's it's almost it almost that was the thing that brought me into teaching i was a substitute teacher in like you know 2010 2011 and i just love the challenge of showing up in a new room every day with 25 kids who don't know your name they probably fought or had an argument yesterday or the week before and they got all types of inside jokes you have no idea about and you're just like yo i got 45 minutes what type of agreements are we going to make in this 45 minutes so that we all can remain sane i love that challenge and i think like that sense of awareness that sense of community that sense of connectedness that sense of it could all go wrong at any moment is so important as just like a critical faculty for how we think about teaching i'm okay i'm in the rank there but no we are guests we are guests we are privileged to be in this space to be in community and sometimes i feel the uneasiness in some of my courses there's one course in particular we work with adults um and i'm like this is what it's like to be in community sometimes people are late sometimes people don't show up everyone has complex lives this is what it is we show up for whoever shows up and we are gracious and i remember my first year i felt like everything had to be because I'm, I'm like this new professor and then i was like no like this is not how i was raised this is not how my mother raised me i just have a piece of paper that does not make me like this 
And so like really checking yourself at the door. Like I remember this goes back to my community, but also to my mom and dad, they modeled this for me. You go in there and you respect everyone. You are no better than anyone else. We are in community. We are here to, you know, to, to learn and to love and to, and to build. So I'm right there with you. And Ray, when you were talking about pushing up like chairs, sometimes I'm like, okay, teachers, let's go. Like we don't just stand back. Come on. Like we've got to get in there and move, get the room ready. It's not the janitor to do it. It's not the parent advocate to do it. It is us. We are guests. Let's do this. And it really like takes some of that, like, okay, moving bodies around to do it. But like we are guests here. They are opening up this space for us. And I will stop there too. Thank you, Chris, for getting me worked up. <laughs> so I kind of want to jump in there and trouble all of that because I do hold this uh, weird hybrid space, right? Which is not new for me um, of like um, being kind of in all these spaces. And um, this is something that I experienced in grad school too when I was going through my PhD where, um, you know, I started grad school in my like 11th year in education and I was like, why are y'all talking all the smack about all the teachers? Let's, let's talk about some of the teachers, right? And let's talk about why those things are happening. But let's talk about the systems and institutions that those are happening in and how like we are not doing our job to actually um, really build what I came to refer to later in my graduate career as future agitators, right? And that and as at a PWI for the first time in my entire life, by the way, like I had to learn, right? Because I was like, you know, I like, I may not look like it, I get it, but I grew up in certain communities and like I taught in certain communities and like I went to a community college. Like I, mm, I'm at a PWI suddenly and you don't think I have a transition? Like, let's talk. Like, it's not the same, right? But I can like, not the same, it's my experience, but like, but trust me, I had a transition, right? And, and so teaching a majority white pre-service teacher like body and not having connections to the community. Mm. And I saw it, right? And I was like, I'm not trying to call anyone out by saying that, but it's like, what are you doing to actually be in the neighborhoods that folks don't want you in because of your predecessors? Like what, what are you doing besides, and then grad students, as we do, come in into these spaces oftentimes when we move to and we and everyone was like oh super negative lens right like like let's be critical about this and tear it all down and that's what we mean by being critical uh-uh like no stop it <laughs> like there's no no one's going to benefit from that and all you're going to do is make yourself miserable for four or five years good job was that exactly what you wanted to do with your time cool i don't want to be miserable like that <laughs> like no like i i have a spiritual well-being to take care of today and that is not the place that i can come from and sustain myself in the work like that is just not it so for me like i had to like cross what i refer to as like the bridge which is kind of like between east lansing and lansing and i had to like go into the city and figure it out right like who are my people because my I, my people didn't actually go to school so they really aren't at the campus right and that doesn't mean i don't want a campus job by the way someday I'm just gonna throw that out there but um but I needed to find like where the community was happening right and I needed to find ways to like to surround myself with the community because the university was a necessarily uncomfortable space for me to be in so you want to know how to become a community engaged scholar <laughs> don't get comfortable with those other graduates stop it like figure out who your people are right and figure out that your people might be some of those other graduates, right? I found mine at, at conferences, and that's actually why I plugged into so many conferences because 
that was where I could, right? Um, but my people were really like, they're still there. I refer to them as my Lansing locals, right? And I talk to them every day still on the phone and they, and they keep my heart held in ways that make this transition easier because I know that that'll happen, right? Even though we're in a time of a pandemic. And so what does it mean to come into the community that I'm in currently where I'm, I'm back in the classroom, which is not what I thought I was gonna be doing next. And to not come in and be like, let me tell you how to do it, right? Because I think that's oftentimes what we do as scholars, whether we mean to or not, right? And as community engaged scholars, I'm with you. What does it mean to actually like walk in and be willing to like pick up the chairs and pick up the trash and like stop trying to like tell folks how to, mm, like listen, listen deeply right? Like actually come in and, and be humble um, and don't fake humility because people can see that too. Like stop it. Um, like, you know, you really got to come in with your heart. And I, and I don't mean that to, like to say like, come in nice. Mm, that's not what I'm saying. I'm not nice. I get myself in trouble with my mouth all the time, right? That's just who I am. That's the woman that raised me. I, I come by it naturally. But um, what does it mean to get quiet? And what does it mean to learn the culture? And what does it mean to figure out how you can actually be of service? Because not everybody isn't like made for community engaged work in graduate school, right? Not everybody is. And, and I think that I saw struggles amongst um, my peers for certain who like had a heart for it. And then like, you know, and yet we're, we're talking about the side of their mouth about Lansing. And I was like, Ooh, like you can't, you can't do that. Like <laughs> you can't like, there are folks there that would invite you in if you would maybe come in with more humility and come in with some grace. And, um, and I was told something by a community organizer in Lansing when I was first starting out in the work there. And what I was told was like, you tend to hide this, but you better start with your heart. And I was like, what do you mean? And he said, you got a heart for these kids. And I was like, oh yeah, that's why I'm doing what I do. And he said, yeah, just keep showing that and the rest will all fall in line. And that is literally what happened. I just wanted to say one thing that um, this whole conversation has made me think about too, is I went, I'm at an institution where we have um, strong relationships with schools. We, we um, teach our literacy courses in class. That's why I went there, because I was like field-based teacher education. There's, this is the way we should be doing it. And so I've been honored and privileged to be able to teach my courses at an elementary school where we are in a school, we are there you know, with families, with teachers, with, with kids. And then my graduate course that I was so privileged to develop in the community literacies, I had it at the school. I partnered with a parent advocate who, part, a big part of it was I just think she's amazing and I love her. And so I'm like, I wanna be with you some more. So we did some, we had the classroom, did some work with the mamas, but one of the things that has come from this, yes, I went to this institution that has a skill-based program and my, my colleagues were very generous about introducing me to people, but I didn't go in there thinking like, okay, I'm from UT, so you, you just know that I'm here to do the work. I really spent time building with teachers, with literacy coaches, with the principal, with parent specialists, because that was important to me. And so I wanted to make sure that I said that, um, these relationships were there before I came, but as someone who really believes in building trust and confianza and reciprocity, I, I, I spent a lot of time 
just getting, being there and building and getting to know each other because they didn't know who I was. Yeah, I was from UT and I was going to teach. I was honored to teach at the school, but I needed to, to build and to be there and to be of service. And so I've spent, I spent a lot of time and I, I want to shout out right now, Anna Whited and Cameron Allen, two parent advocates who are just beautiful, brilliant people working alongside parents, leveraging the resources that are there and who really have brought me in in really special ways that thinking about finding your people, I have found my people in both of them and in the, in the families and parents that are part of these spaces. And so doing that work, even if there's these established relationships, like you still got to go in there and be there. And also leading with your heart, like you said so beautifully. They're, they'll see right through you if you aren't leading by your, with your heart and just being authentic and being, and being real. And that's when you start to really build and have those, I, was sat, I got sat down by some mamas who were like, hey, look, we gotta talk about some of the stuff that's happening. And you know what? I didn't get offended or anything. I was like, we have this, like th this right here is, is it like, tell me how, what we need to do to change. And it was that right there, but that, that wouldn't have happened had like, and that was just a beautiful, for me, it was a beautiful moment of tension and of growth. Um, so I just want to put that all out there. And um, like uh, Ray said, like, that, that's the work. And I remember at LRA, Alan Luke was talking about like, you need to go to schools and be in buildings. Well, that, that's where it's happening. That, that's where we need to be. And that's where, you know, as people at institutions, we should be leveraging where we're at as well. I think one of the, well, there's two things that in terms of how I have gone about my work that I think are like really important. One is, and I, I think this is a, maybe my generation of people uh, as like a, a millennial person is do not start a new initiative. Don't do it. Don't think you're going to get on social media and go to Canva or Photoshop and make a flyer and do a new initiative in a community. Stop it. Don't do it. Like that. I think, um, I think one of the biggest things that I have taken on is like working with the legacy institutions of a community um, and seeing um, elders who have a heart for the community have been there for multiple generations. Uh, but in some ways, the sort of new way of like communicating and the funders and all these other things are beginning to like search for like new things. And so many of those institutions end up getting left behind. I'm thinking like particularly of like black cultural art spaces um, in Philadelphia uh, within that. And some of us uh, get caught up in like, I want to create a new thing and ground a new thing. Um, rather than seeing the importance, the beauty in maintaining and sustaining something over a long time. Um, I think that's one thing that has really like grounded my own work in working with spaces such as Hakeem's Bookstore, which is the oldest black bookstore on the East Coast. Um, and I think a lot of people, you know, might have questions about the type of book selections that they have on the shelf. But we're working. We're bringing in a lot of new texts, and we just got it hooked up with no name books. So we just got a whole bunch of like new energy 
bring into the store and thinking about what are the types of tech selection that are there? How do we, you know, bring more intersections to black identity, whether it be LGBTQ, disability, um, and have those things visible on the shelf. Um, so, but we do that work and I don't do that work out of like thinking I'm coming in and saying, oh, we need to do this. But like, yo, Ms. Yvonne, I think that if we start to add these texts, it can help the business. Like it can continue to grow and grow a community around a bookstore for this new generation. Um, and I just do it like from a, from a space of there. So I think like, it's, I think it's really important to say like, don't start like, take a, a, a real deep look at the institutions that are around you before you get any idea thinking you wanna start something new. Um, and secondly, um, risk. I, um, in particular for, for myself, right, being a, uh, a, a, a child who was sort of like given a, a, a leg up in the game uh, by my community, which was overall way marginalized. But in terms of how I came up in it, it gave me the opportunity to say like, yo, there's opportunity, there's a window out there. And what I see from that, right, is my responsibility to be a bridge um, and to take on precarious situations knowing that me with a master's degree from Ivy University uh, or, or allows me to be able to do something. So I don't hide the fact that like, I'm a Penn PhD student. I do, I do think about it as like, I think with, we can be able to find out a way to get resources to this space. And I wanna join you within that. I don't necessarily care about Penn, but I know people do. So let's figure out how we can work that joint out together. So and I, I say that, like, I think in particular for those who um, have or recognize that maybe a, a bit of stability in a world where so many are not, to take on, like, the, and, like, take on the, like, vulnerability, take on precarious situations and think about how you might offer stability right, and thinking of how we sustain and maintain community and maintain family. It takes someone willing to like put themselves out there. For me, like, I'm not really worried about getting paid like that. I got a little stipend for the next two years, it's guaranteed, that's gonna keep my little rent paid. But while we're in the midst of it, let's figure out how we can kind of continue to do this work. That's, that's, that's something that I'm, I'm, I can offer, right? That doesn't take much out of me. I'm still gonna be able to get, my, get to my one concert a month if concerts ever come back. You know what I'm saying? So I, I also wanna you know, offer the advice of like, step out there with community and step out there like for legacy, right? And for our legacy spaces and think about their own like uh, sustainability and transformations over time. Don't start nothing new. Don't get caught up in the newness. Eric Robeson has a song like that. Mm -hmm.